The Bible reading this morning is Romans 8, uh, verses 28 to 39. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he also, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, friends, we're nearly at the end of our time in Romans for this year. Uh, We'll be back in Term 3 next year. Next week, we're doing things a little differently, helping us to reflect back on so many of the big ideas and wonderful, rich teaching that we've had um, uh, this year in Romans 8. And in particular, we'll have a bit of Q&A. So if you've got questions, uh, then bring them along. Or even better, if you want a sensible answer from me, you could send them in via email because do much better with a moment to think about them. But we'll have the open mic and the opportunity to throw up a question. We've covered off some big topics, haven't we? The, the sinfulness of the human heart. Uh, today's passage has got that big word uh, ending in shun, predestination, uh, which has caused all sorts of questions uh, over the years for people and lots in between. Um, so do feel free to come along prepped with some questions. Now, it's a beautiful day out there today, but it wasn't that long ago that we had a pretty impressive storm come through, didn't we? Um, This picture is actually from a couple of years ago, farmed off the ABC Facebook page sent in by a viewer, but um, it's actually not too dissimilar to what Brighton Jetty would have looked like uh, just a little while ago. Um, Storms come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. This is tropical, in fact, severe tropical cyclone Yasi off the coast of North Queensland just before it made landfall in February 2011, one of the most destructive cyclones in Australia's history. And if you trawl through the archives, this is what a massive dust storm looked like in 1968 when it rolled through the suburbs of Adelaide. That doesn't look like much fun at all, does it? Storms come in all shapes and sizes and so can the hardship they bring as Jess and Siobhan have experienced over these last 12 months. To use this as a metaphor for the hard times of life, I think there are two kinds of storms that we find ourselves in. There are the storms that come upon us 
unbidden, unwelcomed, unwanted. Perhaps it's the devastating medical diagnosis. It's the family conflict. Or it is actually, literally, the disaster of a natural storm, a tree falling through your roof, and the destruction and the chaos that it brings. But I think there's a second type of storm that we find ourselves in too. They're actually the type of storms that we've chosen. Not that you ever choose to walk into a storm without a good reason, but there will be situations of sacrifice and hardship that we might choose. For example, the first responder who chooses to step into the scene of an emergency, knowing that they walk into the storm of danger and destruction, but they do so with a very clear goal and purpose in mind. Or perhaps it's the storm that families take on when they welcome a foster child into their home with all of their baggage and challenges so that that child might know love and stability. It's the storm of stepping in and advocating for a friend knowing that this will cost you time, resources, sleep. There are times when we don't just find ourselves in the storm, we actually choose to step into it. Now, we're about to finish up our time, as I said, in Romans before we return to it next year. And here at the end of Romans chapter 8, God gives us his great assurance, whatever storm might come. Whatever the circumstance of life, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And I think the significance of this applies to both kinds of storms, the ones that just come upon us and the ones that we choose to enter into. And it's actually, it's exhilarating stuff. So let's dive in. Uh, We deliberately kicked off with an overlap from last Sunday's passage because it's such an important summary of the mighty power of the sovereign God who works through all things for the good of his children. Uh, We read in verse 28 and 29 that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Friends, that is God's great plan from before the beginning of creation, to build a great big family. A whole bunch of children growing more and more like Jesus. Uh, In another letter, as Paul wrote to the Christians in the city of Ephesus, we read this same truth in in slightly different words that are helpful uh, to capture from Ephesians chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. You see, there's this wonderful truth that God, if I kept reading, has predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. It's God's plan for his great family to have a whole host of children who are being made more like Jesus. And with that image of parents in mind, it's it's like a loving parent. A loving parent who knows the big picture, the end goal, the destination that they want to grow in their children. Uh, we can all be like kids at various points. We want it all and we want it now. In fact, there's rock songs for grown-ups that say exactly that. 
But just as a loving parent might be withholding the very thing that their child thinks will make them happy, the parent has a greater good in mind. And so it is with the Heavenly Father. Much of the time we can't see how he is working for our good in the midst of the storm, in the midst of hardship. As we reflected last week, we don't have the vantage point to see what God is doing. But as we've spent time here in Romans, and particularly in Romans 8, we are reminded that we do have the vantage point to see what God is like. In verse 3, he is the God who comes to us in his Son to pay the penalty for our sin. In verse 15, he is the God who comes to us in his Spirit to make us his children. And here in verse 28, he is the God who works so powerfully for the good of his children that every situation and circumstance becomes a tool in his loving hand. We don't have the vantage point to see what God is doing, but he has given us the ability to see what he's like. So we can trust that he's both willing and able to work for our good. But we've got to keep the big picture in mind, what the goal is, that it is good for us to be made more like Jesus. And so then in verse 30, we read that wonderful cascade of God's sovereign power that reassures us that God is indeed able to come through on such a big promise. That those God foreknew in verse 29, he predestined with the great goal of being made more like Jesus. He called, he justified, he glorified. It's the cascade of God's sovereign power that shows that he's worthy of our trust because he's actually the one who's accomplished it all. Now, if you were with us, Uh, just over the last couple of weeks, you'd be saying, what does he mean that he's glorified us? Last week, we were talking about how we're longing for glory to come. It hasn't yet happened. We're frustrated creatures still waiting for glory. But I think Paul's point here in verse 30 is that that future reality is so rock-solid, secure, it's a done deal. While we wait for glory to come, it's spoken of in the past tense because it's as good as done. Those God has justified, he also glorified. And so as we come to verse 31, we come to our second point with a really bold question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Because it's a wonderful sentiment to say that God is for us. It's a wonderful idea that God might be working even in the midst of a storm for us but there will be plenty of people and circumstances that are stacked against us that's the experience of life that's the storm that we're talking about is it the fragility of our bodies is it the complexity of our relationships Uh, it may be the general hardship of life in this world or the specific consequence of someone who's actually out to get you There will be plenty of people and circumstances that are stacked against us. But Paul boldly asks, well, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Because the answer is, in the scheme of things, no one really. They can try, but it won't stand. And the underlying assurance for that is found in verse 32. It's not actually in looking into ourselves or looking out upon our circumstances, but it's actually, as Paul invites us to do, it's looking up at Jesus. Because in him we know God's heart. Because he's already given us what is most precious to him. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is the gospel of grace. This is what grounds our assurance that it is Jesus given for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us from chapter 6. How do you know that God is working for your good? How do you know that he's not holding anything back? Because he's already given you what's most precious to him. And everything else is small change. It's like he's given you the key to the house and you're wondering if the cutlery's been sorted out quite right. And I don't mean to trivialise the the challenge and, and the genuine hardship of deep and aching storms, but Paul is drawing us back to see the wonder of what God has given us. And so he rolls on with these, with these rhetorical questions that follow that actually remind us of what we've already learned. Verse 33, who will bring any charge against the God, those that God has chosen? Because people can say what they like. Your self-doubt and, and guilt might throw all kinds of accusations. But if you love God, it is because he has first chosen you. And the one who has chosen you is the one who makes it right. He is the one who justifies. So hear his voice above all the others. You are my child, whom I love. Paul keeps rolling with the questions. Who then is the one who condemns in verse 34? Some might say they can. You might even condemn yourself. You might even read the storm that you're in, the hardship of life, as proof of your condemnation. I know what it's like to be in the depths of despair and to read that despair as God's punishment on me. But who is the one who condemns? No one. And then Paul paints this wonderful picture of the courtroom with Jesus standing before the judge as the barrister for your defence. He stands at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us. And we've got to remember what this means. Because Jesus isn't just a great lawyer. He's not just good at argument. Because when Jesus intercedes before the judge on your behalf, he is the undeniable evidence of your innocence. He stands there as the one who has met the righteous requirement of the law in his death on your, in your place. And so if you are with Jesus, your penalty has been paid. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The storm that you are weathering may come for many reasons, but your condemnation is not one of them. And then in the next question in verse 35, we see that this is just a lot more than just charges and condemnation and our legal standing. This is about relationship. And it's a relationship that we can be just absolutely secure in. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And the great assurance that's spelled out over the next four verses is, is just profound. No one. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But why can we be so sure of this? And the answer is really simple, kind of blindingly obvious. It's because it's God's love. It's not something that's dependent upon you and me and how lovable we are and our fickle comings and goings and changing and, and mistakes and stumbles. We can be sure because it is God's love 
Our relationship with God through Jesus is rock solid certain because it is grounded on the unchanging nature of God himself, the God who is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. So nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, says Paul. Neither trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, none of it. And we can roll over that pretty quickly, but if you just bring those words to mind, there's, there's a picture of just the general suffering of life in this world, of trouble and hardship and famine and poverty. And there's the targeted suffering of persecution and sword and conflict. None of it will cut you off from his love and none of it is because his love has dried up. And the point becomes even clearer as Paul quotes from Psalm 44 in verse 36. We read those words as being like sheep led to the slaughter and the image is hard for us to grasp. I really want to encourage you to turn up Psalm Psalm 44 uh, later on today. And to read the heart that is poured out before God, experiencing a hardship that comes from the hand of God. And yet it has nothing to do with the punishment of sin. The psalm is raw and real. At times this feels like you've, you've rejected me, God. You've turned your back on us as a people. But actually as it concludes, it is the hardship of a loving father disciplining his children. Psalm 44 concludes that it's a hardship under the umbrella of the unfailing love of God. And so back in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing at all, whether it's general suffering of life in this world, targeted suffering because someone's out to get you, or God's discipline of his own children. In all things, we are more than conquerors. The storm is not a sign of defeat or abandonment, just futility. Paul will be so bold. In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Not in ourselves, because we're able to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and overcome and persevere and weather the storm in our own might. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. What Paul's doing there is he's drawing together so much that we've seen in Romans already, that that in Romans chapter 1 through 3, that there is nothing in our own character, our own ability to be good enough that would make us victorious. Romans 4 through 7, it's all by grace through faith, not because of, but despite our nature. It was actually the same conclusion of Psalm 44 that Paul's quoted from, that there is nothing in our own strength that we can do to achieve victory, but through the unfailing love of God, we are rescued. Paul says, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Now the truth is, I often find it's actually um, kids' Bibles that have a way of summing up some of these big ideas most helpfully. So for this week's sermon preparation, I turned to Sally Lloyd-Jones, Jesus Storybook Bible. A wonderful, a wonderful book. And I'd strongly encourage you to have a copy on your shelf if you've got young people in your life. She's got this wonderful repeated refrain scattered through that describes God's love as his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever 
love. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So in the midst of the storm, don't fear accusation and condemnation. Nothing will make him love you less. He already sees you. He knows you. He sent his son to die for you. And in the midst of the storm, don't fear abandonment or neglect. God does not hold out on you. Life is not a tease. Your heavenly father gave his son for you. So you know his heart's desire to give you everything that will bring about that wonderful end of being more like Jesus. Friends, Romans 8 is God's great assurance in the midst of the storm of suffering and hardship. And I think we could stop here and we would walk away well fed by God's word. And I've been profoundly encouraged by these recent weeks in Romans chapter 8. But friends, I think this great assurance goes a step further. I think that through Paul's writing, God's had something more in mind for us to see that this great assurance not only comforts us in the storm, but actually enables us to choose the storm. The great assurance of God's love for us in Christ Jesus enables, even encourages us, gives us the courage to choose the storm. Now, I don't know whether that immediately kind of sits uncomfortably with you. It jars with you. Why would anyone choose the storm if the storm is a metaphor for such suffering and hardship and and pain and struggle and sacrifice? Why would you choose that? I don't want you to be surprised if that sits uncomfortably with us. Because in our society, it's almost like I'm telling you to do something immoral. In, in In our way of thinking, the avoidance of pain has almost become how we decide what is right and what is wrong. Those things which cause pain and discomfort and suffering, they are the definition of wrong. The pursuit of comfort and pleasure, that's the definition of right. So you would never choose something that makes you uncomfortable or suffering. You'd never choose the storm. But actually, in life, we don't need to pause for very long to see that that's a profoundly flawed approach. Uh, Just this week, um, I had to choose the suffering of visiting the dentist with all the pain of needles and drills. There was a very awkward moment when I went, crack, and I thought it hurt so much. Only then I realised, no, he's got the anaesthetic in and it just sounded terrible. But it was definitely a good thing to do. Far better than just trying to dose up on painkillers, avoid the pain, dull the pain... It's a trivial example, but more than that, we need to actually see that God presents a very different way of understanding the world and our place in it. That there is a very different way to think about suffering. And it's made possible by knowing God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It's actually built into part of the agenda of the whole book of Romans, which we're right at the centre of in Romans chapter 8. Even though we're pausing, coming back, this is, the, this is the heart, the middle of Romans. If we cast our mind back a couple of months to where we started out in Romans chapter 1, this kind of summarises the big agenda for the Christians in Rome, that, that they would be growing in gospel conviction because they need to, to be dependent upon God's grace that we might call him Father. And we've seen that the Christians in Rome needed to grow in gospel unity, 
because we know that we're all in the same boat, sinners saved by God's grace, whatever our cultural background, our ethnic status, our our relationship with the Old Testament law, growing in gospel confidence, gospel uh, unity. But actually the third purpose of Paul writing to the Romans is that they would grow in gospel courage. But we haven't seen that so much yet in the first half of the book it really starts to press home in the second half, springing out of chapter 8. Gospel courage comes from knowing that we are secure in Christ so that we are emboldened to choose the difficult path with him. Now, we did get a glimpse of that in chapter 1 of Romans in Paul's description of his own life and his job, kind of his purpose. He said it was to call all the Gentiles, all the nations, all the people of the world to the obedience that comes from faith. That was his life purpose that came with incredible challenge. Lots of opposition, all kinds of suffering. But Paul had a clear purpose and a goal that made it worth it. And underneath it all, a deep conviction that nothing could separate him from the love of God in Christ. And so he chose to step into the storm. And then when we come to the second half of Romans, we will see, in particular in chapter 15... Gospel courage kind of all over the place and Paul inviting it in Rome, in the Romans themselves. He told them that he was writing to them because he was planning a trip around the northern coast of the Mediterranean eventually to get to Spain, that he would be passing through Rome on the way and that he wanted their support in the mission. To spend their time praying for him. To give sacrificially of their money to kind of bankroll his mission and even to make the bold move and jump on the ship and go with him. That's what Paul has in mind as he writes to the Roman Christians, that they would grow in gospel confidence such that they might be encouraged, that they would grow in gospel unity so that they might join in that together in gospel courage that goes out, that steps into the storm. And right here at Romans chapter 8, I think we're seeing Paul's case building that the great reassurance of God's presence with us in the hardship actually emboldens us to choose the hardship. It's actually the reassurance that encourages us to walk in the footsteps of Jesus himself, to choose the way of suffering for the good of others and the glory of God, to choose to step into the storm because we know that he goes with us and nothing can separate us from his love. It's what emboldened Paul... That's what he wanted to encourage the Christians in Rome with too. Nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So let's step out. Let me introduce you to Jim Elliott. Born 1927, died January 8, 1956, at just 28 years of age. When he was speared to death in Ecuador by members of the very tribe that he was seeking to share the good news of Jesus with. As Jim Elliott prepared to set out on his missionary journey, he reflected um, in his journal with these words that have become famous, subsequently published by his wife Elizabeth Elliott, summing up the core conviction that spurred him on to choose to step into the storm. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, to be clear, Jimmy Elliot didn't think that he needed to give his life to secure his eternal salvation. He was thoroughly convinced that our salvation is secured by Jesus' death on the cross, rising to new life. It's by grace, by grace through faith. 
But he was convinced that the sacrifice of his earthly comfort and security, and even his life if it came to it, was worth it for the joy of living in the service of the Lord. And in case you're thinking, ah, yeah, but he was 28 and foolhardy and going out in a blaze of glory, well, his young widow, Elizabeth Elliot, together with their baby daughter, actually continued the very same mission outreach with the very same tribe that had killed her husband for years. Because she shared his conviction in the character of God that enabled them to choose the path of suffering, to step into the storm, because she knew that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, She's far too humble to say it, but it's exactly the same mindset that emboldens our dear sister, who we can only describe as Kay, living in Southeast Asia, because the part of the world that she's gone to is so opposed to the good news of Jesus that it's not actually safe for you to know her full name and the destination where she has gone. It is hard, it is lonely, it is tiring, it is stressful. It is so very costly, which is why we want to have her back and stand with Kay in prayer. Um, We've got her cards down on the welcome table so you can sign up and get a monthly update and just be informed in your prayers. It's why we pray for her on a regular basis here. Because Kay has gone out convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the confidence that fuels her courage to step into the storm. And I think it's that same conviction that emboldens people to open up their lives to to troubled kids or difficult neighbours because they know that whatever storm they bring with them, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. In simple, tangible ways, it's the same conviction that convinces people it is worth giving generously to support mission locally and abroad, even when it comes at cost, real cost, not just of comfort, but big ticket cost, because they know the love of Christ. They long for others to know that same conviction. It's the same conviction that prompts people to structure their diaries and their calendars so that they can give their time to serve others to help them know about Jesus because nothing will separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It is risky stuff. It is costly stuff. And I want to challenge us to be a church who are willing to take those risks, to be the families and the households and the individuals who will choose the difficult path because we know that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I'd love for you to go away in the car, over a coffee, perhaps in a quiet moment this afternoon, to be thinking through how will God's great assurance encourage you to choose the path of sacrifice and service, even when you know it means stepping into the storm. Friends, I want to conclude with Paul's own words from Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, 
pleasing and perfect will. As the band prepares to come on up, let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have shown us your abundant, overflowing love for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That though he who knew no sin would become sin for us. That the eternal Son of God would step into the likeness of sinful flesh. Father, that the righteous one, the judge of all humanity, would actually choose to take upon our sin and the penalty that we deserve. Father, thank you that you have shown such love, lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And Father, we pray that as we stand in this great assurance, looking not to ourselves and our own condemnation, our sense of guilt and judgment, but rather looking to the cross of Christ and the victory that we have in him, Father, in this great assurance, may you teach us that whatever comes our way, whatever storm, to use the metaphor, we find ourselves in, you are there with us. You are working for our good because you have shown us your heart. You hold nothing back. You love us. And Father, may that embolden us to choose to follow in Jesus' footsteps, to step into the storm ourselves for the sake of others and the glory of our loving Father, our mighty Saviour. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.